0: Our Father, we bow our heads in this moment to do just what we have sung. Morning has dawned, the day has awakened, and we are bringing to you our need. Some of our needs feel light, dare we say, almost inconsequential. But there are needs nonetheless. Burdens. Weights. Troubles. Concerns. Questions. Dilemmas. Some at work. Some at home. Some with relationships. Some about the future. Some about the past. Some of our weights and burdens though are not inconsequential. They are weighty they're heavy, our hearts are grieved, even broken, and we come to you with these things because, as the song said, you are a gracious God, you are our source of strength, it is to you, for you, above all, that we live and breathe, everything in our lives, every day every hour is planned by your wisdom every deed is empowered by your sovereign control your sovereign power and authority and so we come to you seeking renewal seeking help to stand seeking your glory to be evidenced and as father we open your word would you be glorified in that word this morning Would you be exalted and might our hearts be equipped, strengthened, emboldened. For as we have already said, we we need you. We need you and everything we need is found in you. So we come, not just walking, but running sprinting to our source of hope and strength. So would you equip us this morning? Would you strengthen us? Would you embolden us? And O Father particularly, would you comfort us this morning by a vision of our Savior with which we are familiar, but a picture that we need Nonetheless. And so would you comfort us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago. I was running some errands one afternoon. As I was making my way through town. Doing various things. I came to my car from one of the errands. And came around the car from the other side. And noticed that one of my tires was low. And not just low. Like dangerously low. Like if I drive on this thing. Am I going to destroy the rim low? And so I... Got in my car and I thought I can try and change the tire here or I can try and limp my way over to the tire store, which was in close proximity. And so that's what I did. I got in my car and I kind of limped my way over there slowly, cautiously, carefully. Bring for God's grace to be abundant on the fool that let the car tire get so low and not destroy the rim. And got over to the tire store, walked in, and of course there was a long line in front of me finally got to the front, explained the problem. The guy said, no problem, give me the keys. We'll be happy to take a look at it. And uh, you can wait for the car here, or you can go and run some errands. We'll have it ready for you soon. And I decided to wait. I mean, I had no other option. So I grabbed one of the chairs and sat down and waited. And I waited. And I waited. And waiting patiently is not one of my um, superpowers or spiritual strengths. And so with a little bit of agitation, because it was taking so long, I finally went back to the counter and I said, um, Hey, um, I see my car has moved from there to there. Is is my car finished and ready? And he said, Let me look. Pulled up the computer. Said, Yep, your tire's fixed. Here are your keys. You're good to go. And I said, well, uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to go, but I think we still need to do an exchange of finances here. I think I still owe you for it. Nope. It's on us. Next time you need a tire, think about us. You're good to go. And I walked out and felt like I hit the lottery. (laughs) I mean, seriously, it was what, about 10 bucks for a tire repair? And it was like somebody was nice to me when I needed it. Some of you are like that this morning. You walked in and you just said, I need some, just be a little extra gracious, a little extra kind, a little extra benevolent towards me. You came to worship this morning and you came like I came into that tire shop however many years ago with a need. Maybe your need is that you're processing the illness of a loved one. Maybe you're processing your own illness. And you have questions and concerns you're wondering where this thing is going to go perhaps you're dealing with a harshness of death that has invaded your life recently and you're thinking about life and death and brevity and God's sovereignty and all of these things perhaps sin has intruded in your life in a significant this way way this week perhaps your sin perhaps someone else's sin but it It's sin nonetheless and it has produced deadly fruit in your life. Perhaps there's some significant decision that awaits you and you're not sure what to do this week. The uncertainty has provoked you to no small amount of stress, agitation, even anxiousness this week. Maybe there's no major issue in your life, but it's just the tyranny of every day. And the relentlessness of it and the speed of it with which it travels. And it's wearing you out. You're needy. And you need a little extra kindness this morning. In fact, the people of God are needy. We always have been. And it's interesting that one of the primary images that the Scriptures use about God's people, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well, is that of sheep. I'm no, I'm no farmer or rancher, but I am told that sheep are among the neediest of animals. There is virtually nothing they can do for themselves except get in trouble. And that is the picture that God has of us. Beginning next week, we're going to be looking at a book that is all about Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. The book of Zechariah. And in preparation for that time, I want to draw a picture for you this morning that is, I trust, familiar to you. It is a New Testament picture of Jesus Christ. Who is this man, Jesus Christ? And what is his role in our lives? The Gospel of John pictures Jesus Christ as a healer, a teacher, the water of life, the bread of life, the true vine, the way, the truth, the resurrection, the life. But there's another image in John's Gospel and the New Testament that dominates as well. And we find it in John chapter 10. It is Jesus as the good shepherd for a needy group of people that are sheep. This role of him as the shepherd speaks to his character, his work, his person. This is your leader when you are lost. This is your guide when you are weary. This is your Savior. As we come to this passage in John chapter 10, and I am sorry to say that we have no PowerPoint this morning, I will do my best to help you out with the outline. But what we're going to find in this passage, our theme for the morning is this, follow Jesus Christ in the same way that dependent sheep follow a faithful shepherd. We're followers. We're needy. We're broken. We're dependent. We're incapable, unable, inadequate. And we have everything we need to, to meet each of those brokennesses and inadequacies in the person of Jesus Christ. You put your eyes on Him and you follow Him and He will be adequate for you wherever you are today. Follow Christ. In the same way that dependent sheep follow a faithful shepherd who is Jesus as the shepherd. What does he do as the shepherd? John, the gospel writer, points to five attributes of Jesus as shepherd. Jesus is the true shepherd, the exclusive shepherd, the sacrificing shepherd, the submissive shepherd, and the dividing shepherd. And I know I went fast. I'll come back, okay? Okay. Number one, verses one to six. How will you follow this Jesus and what is he to you? Verses one to six, Jesus is the true shepherd. He's the true shepherd. To understand this parable, and actually it's two or three parables in these 21 verses, you need to understand a couple of principles. One is that... While the imagery of shepherds was not uncommon in the day and time in which Jesus spoke and taught, even secular leaders spoke about shepherds and their role and their function. Shepherds were not well regarded. They were thought to be perpetually unclean. They were seen to be in the lowest social level with tax collectors, prostitutes, and tanners. They were generally uneducated and so despised and mistrusted they were not even allowed to give testimony in a court of law. They had a reputation of constantly confusing two words, mine and thine. And so as Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd, he is fighting against a caricature that permeates the culture that says all shepherds are bad. And there's a similar kind of Biblical background to false shepherds and false hirelings, the cared for sheep that permeates the Old Testament as well. And this idea of deceptive and unfaithful shepherds is connected not just to real life shepherds, but to those who were to serve as spiritual shepherds of the flock of God. And we find that connection in the book of Zechariah. It's one reason why we picked this passage, why I picked this passage this morning. In chapter 10, Zacharias says this in verse 2 about shepherds. For the teraphim speak iniquity, and the diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. So those who are leading are providing a false comfort, a false direction, a false understanding about where to go and how to get there. Therefore, he says... Zechariah 10-2, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. And it's not that there was no shepherd that should have been appointed. There was. Somebody or a lot of somebody's just failed on their job. And so God says, my anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats, for the Lord has visited His flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like His majestic horse in battle. God will redeem Israel But the shepherds will face His wrath. We find that not only in chapter 10, we find it in chapter 11 as well in an extended discussion. So the background of this is shepherds culturally are despised and God's shepherds among God's people have been faithless to do their task. And Jesus comes now and reveals Himself. Verse 2 as the true shepherd, he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. The real shepherd doesn't climb over walls to enter the fold. And the, the the idea of the fold is probably there's a there's one word, but it connotes a number of different scenarios. But it seems like what Jesus is probably talking about is there's a. A man who has a sheep, and in front of his house he has an enclosure that is walled off where at night he will bring his sheep for protection. And that enclosure has a doorway, an entranceway in. And if someone is coming to do harm to the sheep or to steal the sheep, he doesn't come in through the doorway. Verse 1, he climbs up some other way. He'll crawl over the walls at some other place to go in unnoticed to do his evil deeds. But the true shepherd, he says, verse 2, enters by the door. In fact, verse 3, to him, to the true shepherd, the doorkeeper opens. Notice verse 3, there's a difference between the doorkeeper and the shepherd. They're not the same people. The doorkeeper is someone that's hired. He's like a porter, if you will. He's hired for a task. He's probably hired just to watch over the fold during the night. And he would typically position himself in front of the doorway. It was not just a a gate, but it often might just be an open entrance. And he would lay down in front of that entrance, covering the whole entrance, and that would preclude the sheep from going out or anyone else from coming in. And the picture in verse 3 is of the shepherd, the true shepherd, he comes... To care for the sheep, and he comes to the doorway. And as he gets to the doorway, the doorkeeper stands up, moves aside, and allows him to come in. Why? Because he's the true shepherd. He's the genuine shepherd who has a right to care for the sheep. What does a shepherd do with them? Verse 4 He puts forth all his own. He comes to the sheep, comes to the sheepfold. It's the beginning of the day, most likely, is what Jesus has in mind here. And he does what he's going to do with the sheep during the day. He takes them out of the sheepfold, takes them out to the pasture so that they can graze and get the food they need fully. But when he takes them out of the sheepfold, he's not taking them from one place of danger to a place of no danger, is he? So when they're in the sheepfold, there's a danger that somebody might come in and attack them and do harm to them other shepherds or wolves or some other kind of predatory animal. But when they go out into the pasture, it's not like all the problems have been removed. There are, there are different kinds of problems, but maybe even more problems in that. So notice what he does. He says, when he puts forth all his own, he grabs all of them, no one is left behind, all of them go out. And when he does that with them, he goes ahead of them. What's he mean? He means he's leading them. He's showing them this is the way to go. He's showing them the pathway, the singular pathway to safety. He's providing them visible, directive leadership. Spiritually, we would say that the spiritual leader is saying this is the way to God. This is the way to safety. This is the very kind of thing... That David the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 23, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He takes me out of the fold. And he takes me to the pastures. He leads me there. And he makes me to lie down there. He leads me beside quiet waters. He shows me where to go. So I am safe. So I am cared for. And notice the response of the sheep to the one who goes as the good shepherd. He goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Wherever the shepherd goes, that's where the sheep are. The sheep are following him and they follow him by listening to his voice. And again, Jesus isn't just talking about natural shepherds here with literal sheep. He's talking in spiritual terms, isn't he? If you're going to follow a spiritual leader, a spiritual shepherd, it means following him, listening to him, and not just listening, but listening and obeying. For those of you who are parents or grandparents, you will sometimes say to your children on very rare occasions, I'm sure, something like, you're not listening to me. And what do you mean? You don't mean that their auditory channel is turned off. You mean their obedience channel is turned off. You're getting it trying to get it turned on. Jesus talks about that in John chapter fourteen, just a couple of chapters later. He says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments fourteen fifteen and then fourteen twenty one he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him we We follow the shepherd because he is good for us, he speaks the truth, we love him. And we delight to do what he wants. So the sheep follow him, they follow him by loving him, by obeying him, and they are not dissuaded from following him by anyone else or anything else. Notice verse five. A stranger, they simply will not follow. Now, in English, if I, if I put two negatives together, it just doesn't work. So if I say something like, A stranger, they simply will not never follow. You would say, not never. That means they will always follow. But that's not the way it works in Greek. In Greek, you can pile up as many negatives. and The more negatives you got, the more emphatic it is. And Jesus used two negatives here to say they just won't do it. They won't follow the stranger. And instead of following the stranger... They flee from him. Why? Because they do not know the voice of strangers. They haven't listened to the voice. They haven't been trained by the voice. They haven't listened to the message. They haven't listened to the indoctrination. They have no desire for it. They only have a desire for the truth they've been told by the true shepherd. There's a remarkable relationship between sheep and this shepherd. Notice verse 3. I skipped over this earlier, but notice this. Shepherd that comes into the sheepfold and he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. He knows their identity. They're not anonymous. Now, if you or I would walk into a sheepfold, if there are a hundred sheep in a sheepfold, we'd all go like, well, they all, I mean, it's like it's a hundred sheep. They all look the same to me. Not the shepherd. He knows them all. Every single one knows a name, knows the way they're created, knows the way they're wired, knows their inclinations, knows their temptations, knows their desires. Why? Because he made them that way. That's that's the role that he has with them. He not only knows their name, but notice this, they're his own sheep. They belong to Him. Now there's a sense in which everything belongs to Jesus, right? But He's speaking here in a particular way. That the good shepherd, the true shepherd, looks at the sheep and says, Mine! You belong to Me! And you belong to My care and My provision. This is not unlike... The kind of care and provision that Ezekiel anticipates when he speaks about the coming shepherd who will serve as Messiah to care for the people of Israel. Ezekiel 34, verse 11, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. And I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains by Israel, by the streams, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture. And their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will flee, feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the scattered, I will bind up the broken, I will strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong, I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Those who are weak and broken and needy, they go to the shepherd and the shepherd will care for them. Those who are self-sufficient and self-reliant and say, I don't need anybody else, will face the judgment of his wrath. So he also says in verses 23 and 24, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. What does that mean? It means I've said it and nothing can change it. This is unalterable. I will care for my people. Isaiah says something similar. Isaiah 40, verse 11, like a shepherd, he, the servant, will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Well, the nation of Israel was filled with shepherds who were there for false purposes and selfish reasons. They were the kind of shepherds, verse 1, that climbed into the sheepfold in a different way to the to steal and to rob and to destroy. Oh, not so with our shepherd. We have a true shepherd who does not steal, does not abuse, does not mislead the sheep. It is the shepherd Jesus Christ. And a more gentle shepherd you will not find. Oz tells a story about the Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman who one day was listening to a piece of music by Stravinsky and had this vision in his mind about a 19th century cathedral. And in his vision, he's seeing himself wandering around this cathedral. And and finally, he comes in this grand building to a picture of Jesus Christ. And he realizes the importance of the picture of Jesus Christ. And he said in that vision to the picture, speak to me. Speak to me. I will not leave this cathedral until you speak to me. And the picture being a picture was silent. He heard nothing. Later that year, he produced, Bergman did, a film entitled The Silence. A film about the characters. A film of characters who despair of ever finding God. It was the overflow of that vision. God cannot be found. Oh, brothers and sisters, you do not have a God like that. You do not have a Savior like that. You have a Savior who not only speaks, but He comes. And He seeks you out. And He calls you by name because He knows you. And He embraces you. He welcomes you. He guides you. And He leads you. This Jesus is the true shepherd. The true shepherd. There's a second attribute that John points to through Jesus' parable. It's in verses 7 to 10. A second attribute, point number two, blank number two. Jesus is the exclusive shepherd. He is the true shepherd and he is the exclusive shepherd. Here in verse 7, Jesus changes the image a little bit. He moves from being the true shepherd to being the door or the doorway of the fold. And he's pointing to the fact, truly he says to you, I am the door of the sheep. He's pointing to the fact of the exclusivity of the way to get the protection of God and to go to God. There's only one way. It's... Not unlike what he says in 14.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I'm the only way. I am the singular way. And notice what he says in verse 9. I am the door. Again, he makes that image. I'm the door. I'm that entrance way. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. In other words, the doorway is open. It's, it's wide open. Do you want safety? Do you want protection? Do you want shelter of this sheepfold? Then come in. You can come in. But notice he says, if anyone. And it's not a given that everyone will. Anyone can. The message has gone out. The message is available. The blood is available for forgiveness. The comfort of Christ is available through the cross. They can come in, but they may not. The doors open wide, but not everyone is going to try it. And if you want safety, you've got to come through that one door. There's no options for anything else that will be adequate. Now, I might say to you after the worship service today, when I'm greeting you, Hey, come over to my house tomorrow and um, I'll throw something on the grill and we'll eat some dead meat. And you say, great, I'm on my way. What time and where do you live? Oh, any time is fine and just pick a house. Any house is fine. It doesn't matter. Just go to a house and I'll make dinner for you. And you would say, well, that's hate to tell you this preacher, but that's stupid you're going to cook for me i got to go to your house oh no just go anywhere it'll be alright no if you want my food you've got to come to my house if you want Christ's salvation if you want forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can grant if you want comfort that only Jesus Christ can give if you want shelter that only the Father in Heaven can give then you've got to go to Him there's no other way It's exclusive. Our willingness to stomach Christ's exclusivity and our culture hates that exclusivity, doesn't it? Hates it. But that does not change the reality. Jesus is simply reiterating what we already have heard in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4 Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on earth below and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no No other. He's exclusive. Christ is the only way. But because men hate that exclusivity, there are pretenders to His position. And always have been. That's what we found in Zechariah chapter 10. And we're going to find that all throughout that book as well. And notice what these pretenders produce. I'm the door of the sheep. Verse 7. There are thieves and robbers. Verse 8. That the sheep did not hear, did not follow, did not obey. What do those thieves and robbers do? Verse 10. The thief comes in only to steal, to kill, to destroy. Notice the progression. Steal, kill, destroy. I'm going to take. I'm going to kill what I don't take and ravage everything I don't kill. It's relentless. It's done with hatred, with animosity. Absolute destruction. Notice this. Notice the contrast. Verse 10, The thief comes in to steal, kill, destroy. I've come, that they might have life, And have it abundantly. Again, progression. Not just life, but abundant life. Magnificent life, eternal life, infinite life. Magnificent beyond our comprehension. And and we're, we're meant to see this contrast. One way will kill you. One way will give you life and joy and satisfaction. Again, he's not just talking about physical shepherds. He's talking about spiritual shepherds. And the spiritual shepherds who are false shepherds instead of offering life, take life. Listen. Legalism kills. Self-righteousness kills. Pride kills. Unacknowledged, unconfessed sin kills. Every way to quote-unquote life apart from Jesus Christ kills. Everything without Jesus Christ kills. Only Jesus can give you life can give you renewal, can give you hope, can give you satisfaction. And notice this as well. To say that Jesus is the only door is not only to say that He is not, that to, is not only to say that He's the only way, but it, it is also to say that as the door, He provides safety and He provides security. An Old Testament scholar by the name of Sir George Adam Smith was traveling about a century ago in the Middle East and fell into a conversation with a shepherd. The shepherd showed Smith the uh, place that he would be leading his sheep that night consisted of four simple walls and then an entryway into those walls. Sir George said to him, that's where they go at night? Yeah. And when they're in there, they are perfectly safe. But but there's no door, said Sir George. And the shepherd said, I am the door. The man was not a Christian. He was not speaking the language of the New Testament. He was simply speaking from an Arab shepherd's viewpoint. And so Sir George Smith looks at him and says, What do, what do you mean you are the door? And the shepherd said, When the light is gone... And all the sheep are inside. I lie in the open space and no sheep ever goes out but across my body and no wolf ever comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. My sheep are safe. When Jesus calls himself the door, he wants you to know you're safe with him. That doesn't mean there won't be dangers. There are wolves out there. There are predators out there. There are enemies out there. He doesn't mean that they will be removed. But he is saying when you cling to him, he'll always keep you safe. You're secure with him. If you and I want rest, we need to run to Jesus Christ. Jesus may well have been thinking back to Psalm 23 when he uttered those words Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. I'm safe. Yeah, he's exclusive. Yes, he's restrictive. Every dead and deadly way is excluded from his safety but Jesus is the way to life and when you get there he is safe and you are safe the third attribute about Jesus Christ is found in verses 11 to 16 we have seen that Jesus is the true shepherd secondly we have seen that he is the exclusive shepherd thirdly we now see verses 11 to 16 he is the sacrificing shepherd He is the sacrificing shepherd. In case his hearers have missed the point, he says it again in verse 11, most boldly, most strongly, emphatically, and repetitively, I am the good shepherd. I'm not like the kinds of shepherds that you see around you and you have a caricature of the way they are. I am the, above all, the definitive, singular, good shepherd. What do I do as good shepherd? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He dies for his sheep. And when Jesus uses that little preposition, for, he means in the place of. He's talking about a substitutionary death. Now, would not be unusual, I suppose, in that day and time when a shepherd would lie down in front of that doorway that a wolf would come and attack and he would die to preserve his sheep. But if he died for his sheep, what happened next? The sheep died. But when our shepherd dies for us, We don't die. We live. We were in danger. But because he died, now we're safe. Now we're comforted. Now we're provided for. He died for us in our place, bought our sin. About some of our sin. About the stuff that isn't quite so bad. I mean, you know, the little bit of anxiety. You wake up every once in a while in the middle of the night. You know, you covet a Corvette as it's driving down the road. But I mean, seriously, who can't? I mean, he died for that stuff. But he didn't die for the bad stuff. I mean, like the, the, the really bad stuff. He didn't die for that, did he? Oh, brother and sister, he bought it all. There's no sin in your life he you didn't buy. There's no sin in your life that as he was on the cross, he didn't say, That one's mine. Father, pour out my wrath, pour out your wrath against me for that one. He bought it all. I want you to notice this as well. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The good shepherd voluntarily, willfully, intentionally Gives up his life for his sheep. No shepherd ever laid down in front of that doorway at night night and said, Well, I think tonight I will give up my life for the sheep. I'm going to die for the sheep tonight. Now, he may have been aware that something might happen. But he never said, Tonight's the night. But our Savior did. He planned it with intentionality, with purpose. In contrast to him, verse 12, is the hired hand, the one who is not a servant, not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. And he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he runs and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees. Why? Because he's the hired hand. He doesn't care about the sheep. He's not concerned. He's not going to die for the sheep. Jesus invited the wolf as it were, so that he could with intentionality lay down his life, his life was not taken from him, he gave it. voluntarily, John 2030, breathing his last, 1930, excuse me, Christ died for you. And not only does he die for you, But you get all the blessings and all the privileges that belong to him. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He wore my crown, the crown of thorns. I wear his crown, the crown of glory. He wore my dress. No, rather he wore my nakedness when he died on the cross. I wear his robes, the royal robes of the king of kings. He bore my shame. I bear his honor. He endured my sufferings to this end that my joy may be full and that His joy may be fulfilled in me. He laid in the grave that I might rise from the dead and that I may dwell in Him. He died for you so you get everything that belongs to Him. It's not just that He took your place. It's that He granted everything that He has for you. This is the true shepherd, the exclusive shepherd, the sacrificing shepherd. And fourthly, the submissive shepherd. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, reiterating what we've just talked about, about his intentional sacrifice. I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Watch this. This commandment I received from my Father in the triune Godhead, the Father exhibiting. The leadership that is due his role within that perfect unity of God. Cultivated a plan that said, I'm going to create a people. They will fall away from me and I will redeem them and buy them back by the blood of the second person of the Trinity. Who will take on humanity so that he can shed blood and die for that people and be resurrected. That was the command that Jesus received and he embraced it and he followed it. Jesus Christ submitted to the eternal purposes of God to redeem us from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. We find the picture of Jesus submitting to the will of the Father. Listen to chapter 14, verse 21. Excuse me, 31. I will not speak much more with you, Jesus says in the upper room to the disciples. For the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. And he wasn't just saying, let me go anywhere. He's saying, let me go to the cross. Because I want the world to know that I love the Father. And I'm going to obey his plan. You might have the question at the moment. Is it loving for the Father to send the Son to the cross? I mean, Jesus says that it is, right? For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. Is it loving for a Father to send a Son to the cross? Is it loving for the Father to send the Son to the cross? And Jesus would say yes. We talk about biblical love here. Define it in a couple different ways. And I would say it this way. Love is a commitment of my will and my affections to your needs and best interests. Regardless of the cost to me because of my love for Christ. Is it... A demonstration of the affection and will of the Father for the Son to the needs of the of the Father to the Son for the Son's best needs, best interests and needs to send him to the cross. Is that loving? Does that fit that definition? Well, notice what Jesus says, seventeen, He loves me because I lay down my life. He commanded me to lay down my life, and I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. How do we know as human beings, the glory of the Son? He stands apart. How do we know He stands apart? Because he's a great teacher? been a lot of great teachers. I mean, what, what makes Jesus so compelling as a teacher, so compelling as a leader? So compelling as a master because no one has voluntarily given up life and embraced death. Now people have died, but no one has given up life like Jesus has. And no one has ever had the authority to reinvigorate himself with life again except Christ. That's what makes him glorious. He gave up life and He rejuvenated Himself to life in Himself. And it is it is loving for the Father to do that because nothing else would have demonstrated the glory of Christ to a needy world like His death and resurrection. So yes, yes, it is loving for the Father to send the Son to the cross. And yes, Christ is exalted as a shepherd when he submits to the Father's will. I want you to notice one last attribute about Jesus Christ as a shepherd. He is a true shepherd, the exclusive shepherd, the sacrificing shepherd, the submissive shepherd. Finally, he is the dividing shepherd. Jesus said this, verse 19, and a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. (laughs) Why? Because... It's true, exclusive, it's sacrificing, it's submissive. It, it it blows every category they had, not only of shepherds, but of God. Can't be. And so some were saying, he has a demon. It's insane. He's insane. Why, why are you listening? And others are saying, these are not the sayings of a demon-possessed man. A demon-possessed man can't open the eyes of a blind man, can he? And he's referring back to, they are referring back to Jesus healing the man born blind in chapter 9. There's a division. If you haven't seen it yet, you will. Jesus Christ divides people. Jesus Christ divides people who might otherwise be unified. He says it this way in Matthew chapter 10. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be members of his household. He who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves a son or a daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy after me, uh, worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. It's, it's all about division. And you know that, don't you? I dare say there's not a family here that doesn't know the division that's centered on Jesus Christ. Some are believers and some are not. He divides. What people think about Him is divisive. But watch this. He is divisive not only because of what people think about Him. He is divisive because of what He thinks about people. Because the shepherd is not only a shepherd, the shepherd is also a judge. The judge. Listen to what is said of him in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, the Son of Man, of course, is Jesus Christ, He is the shepherd. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, come. You are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink so on the shepherd is not only divisive to us the shepherd divides us the shepherd judges the shepherd's his shepherd evaluates don't misunderstand the picture of Jesus as a shepherd don't think of him only as carrying wounded lambs on his shoulders oh brothers and sisters he does that and i want you to hear that that's been Ninety-five percent of this message is I want you to hear the comfort that comes from your shepherd. But he does more than that. The shepherd will also divide those who believe in him from those who do not believe. He's not the kind of shepherd that says, I take all comers. He rejects the goats. He rejects the wolves. Some of you here this morning are his sheep. And the promise of eternal life is sure for you. And this passage has been about how he loves you, how he knows you as his own, and how he cares for you. And some of you, as the passage in Matthew indicates this morning, are here as goats. You're not part of the flock of God. You're an imposter trying to get in, but He sees through you to the true character of your unbelieving heart. You are not and cannot be part of His flock unless unless you change. And the change comes by the acknowledgement that you are a sinner, that is de- terrible, desperate, uncaring, and dead. We don't have time to go to it, but the Scriptures reiterate that over and over. Romans 3 particularly speaks to the emptiness of our lives. The reality is you cannot save yourself. You can never go before the throne of an almighty, infinite, holy, completely holy God and say, I'm good enough. You won't pass the test. But as this passage says, Jesus Christ came and intentionally, willfully, joyfully gave his life for his sheep. He was and is the perfect God-man. He is sinless, was sinless, always will be sinless, and was never under any condemnation for his own. And yet, as the shepherd, he looked at you and your need and your pitiable condition and said, I will die for that one. And he did die for you. And if you, you believe that Jesus Christ accepted all of God's wrath against all of your sin and that God was fully satisfied not because of anything you have done but only because of what Christ has done then my brother and friend you can be God's son. We live now not because we are good and deserving but because Jesus Christ is good and deserving and He took your sin which He did not deserve and He bought it and redeemed it. And is changing you in the process. And friend if that's. What you believe. Then you can have. And will have eternal life. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The shepherd. A good shepherd. A true shepherd. A sacrificing shepherd. A submissive shepherd. A dividing shepherd. Magnificent shepherd. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about our shepherd. There is more in Jesus, the good shepherd, than you can pack away in a shepherd. He is the good, the great, the chief shepherd. But he is much more. Emblems to set him forth may be multiplied as the drops of the morning but the whole multitude will fail to reflect all of His brightness. Creation is too small a frame in which to hang His likeness. Human thought is too contracted. Human speech too feeble to set Him forth to the full. He is inconceivably above our conceptions, unutterably above our utterances. And He is our shepherd. I don't know why you need Jesus as shepherd today. But I know you need Him as shepherd. And wherever you need Him as a shepherd, He is adequate for your need. You run to Him. He is true. He is good. He is adequate. Our Father, we thank You for Christ our Savior. the trueness of his character, for the submission that he demonstrates by going to the cross and standing eternally as the intercessor for us who went to the cross. Thank you for his eternal blood that was shed infinitely To cover the infinite weight. And burden of our sin. And thank you that. He's so good. He's so approachable. He's so kind. He's so adequate. Might we be comforted by him today. Whatever our need. Be strengthened by his. Provision. Father, some here this morning might not know him yet as shepherd. Might they, because of this word or some other word, might they run, flee to, embrace, delight in the good shepherd Jesus Christ? And we pray these things, thanking you for him and for his grace. Amen.